I have titled the sermon, I don't know what they put here, Functional Faith. I think that was the title I gave Nora. I don't know if it, did that make it to the... But I, I gave it a subtitle, Gospel-Sized Faith for Everyday Life. Okay, so I want us to think through the idea of, of functional faith. Because, you know, given our, li- uh, given our need to know what this life of faith is supposed to look like, uh, I want you, I'm going to ask you to open your copy of the scriptures to Romans chapter 1. My desire is that God will use our time to remind us of the hope we have in the gospel for both our biggest problem, our sin problem, but also encourage us to know that through the gospel... We're empowered to respond to the trials of everyday life with joy and with hope. All by faith in what Christ has not only done for us, but what He continues and promises to do in us. So let's look at uh, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. We'll read through uh, 17 together. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. With the skill of a master builder, Paul communicates the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By establishing the foundational argument that would cause Martin Luther to call the letter to the Romans the most important piece in the New Testament. He called it the purest gospel. Let me start today by giving you a quick synopsis, uh, some historical background of what Paul is is doing in the first section of Romans chapters 1 through 4. Paul in every way expresses the consummate pastor, always encouraging, ever gracious, and constantly expressing hope for and delight in the different churches he wrote to, that one would have felt like you were always on Paul's mind. For instance, like look at uh, the end of verse 9, that without ceasing I mention you, verse 10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow... By God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He says in verse 11, For I long to see you. Later in verse 13, I have often intended to come to you. As Paul begins this letter, we can see how this passage is just dripping with pastoral delight for the saints who make up the church in Rome and how he couldn't wait to preach the gospel to them. He, Paul was consumed by the gospel. 
And in verses 16 and 17, Paul makes two significant points for our time today. First, he describes this gospel, this word he is declaring about the redemptive work of Christ, which is inherently filled with the power of God to save sinners. And secondly, this gospel, which is for both Jew and Gentile alike, is revealed and received by faith. Though familiar verses to many of us, Paul reminds us, and reminds his listeners, that the righteous shall live by faith. They won't just have a faith, they won't just be you know, thinking faith, they will live by faith. This isn't a cerebral exercise to Paul. This isn't a, a mental ascent. Now, this is a living, active, functional faith. The righteous shall live by faith. He ends that section with the righteous shall live by faith. Another way that phrase has been translated is the just, who by faith are righteous, shall live. Commentators have noted that the theme of this letter is expressed in the phrase, a righteousness from God is revealed. This sums up Paul's entire message to the Romans. And please don't ever lose sight of how revelatory this message was and continues to be. Which leads to my first point. The gospel produces righteousness in us when it is received by faith. The gospel produces righteousness in us when it's received by faith. In making this declaration, which would have been mind-boggling to first century readers, Paul begins to develop an argument that sets both law-following Jew and pagan Gentile in the same desperate situation. Both must receive this gospel message by faith. And in doing so, he quotes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, The righteous shall live by faith. This would have initially drawn in his Jewish listeners who would, rather, who would later have felt deeply confronted by his emphasis on grace in contrast to a righteousness produced through having kept the law. But as we continue through the letter, Paul sets the stage and draws all of us to respond, not with our imagination or whatever we think God must be like, nor with any hope based on our efforts, like the believer striving to keep the law. Instead, the Holy Spirit is revealing that we only experience eternal life found in the gospel of Jesus Christ when we receive it by faith. Paul knows his audience, and what he's doing is pointing his readers past their righteous efforts that condemn to the righteousness of God that only comes by faith. But what is, what is faith? It would be good for us to define some of the terms that we use regularly, but, but maybe aren't, aren't clear to us. And so, this morning, let's define faith as this. A reliance upon and trust in God. A reliance upon and trust in God. And this faith is fleshed out in three ways. First, it's expressed in a relational faithfulness. That is, by faith, we have entered into the covenant community of God, trusting His faithfulness to us as Father. Secondly, it includes a spiritual perception. That is, we walk by faith and not by sight. Our perception isn't limited to what our natural eyes see because God has given us spiritual eyes. And then finally, this faith will resolve in a future fulfillment in the return of Christ. I don't know about you, I cannot wait for that fulfillment. So one day, our faith will become sight. And our living and present hope will become reality when Jesus returns at the end of the age. And this has been a key distinctive of Christianity. 
So to have, pagan, uh, to have a pagan walking in off the street and being told to give up their idolatry and put their faith in Christ wasn't the only hurdle represented in the room as this letter was first being read. There were religious Judaizers whom Paul confronted with this gospel of grace as well. And he uses language that when translated is, is challenging to comprehend. Phrases like from faith, for faith. What, did, what does that even mean? Remember, we have a working definition, definition of faith, right? A reliance upon and trust in faith in God. But listen to what Dr. D.A. Carson says in his commentary on Romans. One of the distinguishing features of Paul's discussion of God's righteousness is his insistence on its connection with faith. This connection is underscored in the last part of verse 17. By faith, from first to last, is a fair paraphrase of the Greek, by faith unto faith. The phrase emphasizes that God's righteousness is experienced by faith and nothing but faith. The quotation from Habakkuk 2 and verse 4 reinforces the connection between righteousness and faith. For we could also translate the phrase as, The one who is righteous by faith will live. Will live refers in the context of Romans to eternal spiritual life. So previously we defined faith. And I think it would be wise to also define righteousness. Some of these key big terms we can get lost in. What do the scriptures mean when they speak of righteousness? Well, the Hebrew word tzedek probably derives from an Arab root meaning straightness or leading to the notion of an action which conforms to a norm. One basic ingredient in the Old Testament idea of righteousness is relationship, both between God and man and between man and man. The idea of righteousness includes a conformity to a certain set of expectations which vary from role to role. Righteousness includes a relational aspect and suggests a definitive way of living. The Bible always recognizes God's ways as righteous. And when we walk in His ways, our way is also recognized as righteous. When we don't, or rather once we have fallen out of step with His ways, we're no longer recognized as righteous, but rather unrighteous. The gospel is the power of God, and it's received by faith alone. And affects righteousness in the life of the believer. By the way, what does the gospel mean? We, we know that to mean the good news, right? But as Paul is unloading this gospel truth on the Romans, that righteousness can only come to us through faith, where does Paul begin unfolding this mystery? With good news? Actually, actually no. He starts, he starts in, and we see it in, continue, in continuing in chapter 1, he begins with really bad news. He begins with the wrath of God. It's coming, and it's coming on unrighteous people who refuse to recognize God as God. No unrighteous person will escape the wrath of God. This would not have been news to first century Jews. They would have known that God's judgment is righteous. And they were anticipating its arrival on the unrighteous. The, un, or the eye-popping reality for lie-abiding Jews would have come in the answer to the question, Who are the unrighteous? Paul goes on in chapter 2 to refer to the ungodly who refuse to acknowledge God for who He is in all of His majesty and glory. Now again, imagine being in this context in the first century. Jewish listeners would have expected to hear, God, or to hear pagan Gentiles being told of the wrath of God that is upon them for their idolatry. You can imagine the, the Jewish sect of the audience amening Paul at that point. Amen, amen, preach that. But then Paul turns the tables on them and proclaims that lawless idolaters aren't the only ones who will experience the devastating wrath of God. 
those who attempt to secure righteousness through the law would also be under that very same wrath. And you can imagine all the, the amens dying down. The gospel of grace has always been confrontational and challenging. First century listeners experience the same challenge that plays out today. Why? Because the message of the cross, that salvation is received by grace through faith alone, was just as much a hindrance to those trapped in natural thinking in the first century as it is today. Paul is laying the groundwork of the gospel by informing the church that we are all under wrath. If we've not believed in this great gospel of Jesus Christ, God's wrath remains on us. Which is what we see in chapter 3, right? Paul drives home the point, no one is righteous in and of themselves. First century Jewish minds are getting blown away right about now. Their end, apart from Christ, was going to be the same as ungodly pagans. Finally, in chapters 3 and 4, Paul contrasts the unrighteous, all those who live by or disregard the law, to faith-filled Abraham, the one justified by his faith in Yahweh. So, so that's what's going on in, in the initial landscape of Romans as Paul begins his letter. But remember, I mentioned a verse from the Old Testament. And I want to go back to verse 17 now and consider Paul's use of the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, that, that concept of living by faith is, is more than just our justification before God, right? That plays out every day of our lives. Ever wonder why New Testament authors use the verse they use? I mean, we know it's by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit superintending the writing of the, of the New Covenant. But there are 21,345 verses in the Old Testament. It sort of begs the question in my mind, why this one, Paul? Why here? Why now? Part of God's message to us from Romans requires that we consider why Paul used this verse from the book of Habakkuk. And it will be a foundational because the two books and their messages are intertwined. There are certain parallels occurring. Without turning there, here's just a quick synopsis of Habakkuk that will inform us of what's taking place in that story. So in Habakkuk's time, the setting is, is Judah. Uh, around 590 BC, just prior to the Chaldean invasion. There's been a total abandonment of the ways of God. The people had thrown all caution of following Yahweh to the wind. People in Jerusalem were taking advantage of one another. There was a, a total lack of order, destruction, violence, strife, contention, perversion of justice. Sound familiar at all? All these things are surrounding the prophet. Okay? And, and the problem here is all of these things are being propagated against the people of God by the people of God. And, and the, the prophet of God is shocked by all this. But what shocks him the most is that God is remaining silent. He doesn't understand that. So he cries out to God. And it's in this moment that God in his kindness chooses to no longer remain silent. And he enters into a dialogue with Habakkuk. When God speaks, he tells Habakkuk what he's planning to do. He's about to send an even more wicked nation against his wicked people. Now, this would have been something no one in Jerusalem could have imagined. God would never judge us by using someone else, a more wicked nation than ourselves. But God tells Habakkuk the reason why he's doing this. He is going to reprove, or he's going to use this nation to discipline his people. And after some back and forth between the prophet and, and God, Habakkuk expressed his belief in God. He believed God and trusted Yahweh to fulfill his redemptive work in this situation. It was in this context of Habakkuk's willingness to trust God for salvation in the midst of future devastation that God tells Habakkuk, the righteous shall live 
by their faith. God, in essence, is saying, though devastation is about to encompass this place, if you'll trust, or as you are trusting my, me and the, the purposes, my redemptive purposes, and we believe that they're good and will maintain trust in, in me, even though there's no naturally apparent reason to do so, you will live. You'll live. And I'm, I just want to stop here for just a second because as I was preparing this message, uh, I got the sense that some of you may be in a similar place like Habakkuk was. You kind of feel like chaos is, is encompassing you. Uh, you feel that station has overtaken you. Chaos is consuming. And you feel a little bit like you're drowning in a sea of God's silence. Like where in the world are you in the midst of all of this? Well, I just felt impressed with the Lord while I was preparing to make sure you were aware your Heavenly Father knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're going through. In fact, He's in every ounce of your experience right now. Okay, so uh, you may feel like you're drowning. You're not drowning. Okay, your enemy would love for you to feel like you're drowning. But the, the, the word is clear. Our God holds us. He sustains us. He will carry you through this. We simply need the one who walks on water to raise us up out of the water. Okay? So, a word of encouragement. Because I don't want to run past those who are hurting today. I mean, by God's grace, hopefully nobody is. But in all likelihood, some of us are. But God meets us right there. Okay? You may feel like that. But Habakkuk is experiencing this. He's hearing this word. Devastation is about to consume him. And he expresses that kind of faith in his song that completes the book of Habakkuk. By the end of the dialogue, knowing that God has uh, that as God disciplines his people, there will be nothing left of Jerusalem. Nothing. And it's in this setting that he cries out with immeasurable faith, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's faith. Amen. That's functional faith. So what's happening in Habakkuk's life in this moment? He's heard from Yahweh. He's received his word by faith. He's put his trust in this soul-refining God. And as a reflection of this trust, has responded with a flurry of faith-filled joy. Now the reason I've considered all of this with you is because what Habakkuk reveals in the Old Testament finds fulfillment in the gospel Paul is preaching in the New. This is a vital point for every Christian to see and comprehend. When God speaks and we trust Him at His word, He accounts that faith-filled response to us as righteousness. And He did it with Abraham. He did it here with Habakkuk. And He's promised, as Paul tells us, to do it in our lives as well. That should light us up. That should give us hope for Mondays, for our Tuesdays. For our Wednesdays, when, when, well, hump day's coming, but I don't feel so hope-filled right now, right? God spoke. His salvation for us is complete, and He's promised to be at work in every situation that we experience, leading up to the fulfillment of His saving grace that will be accomplished when we enter eternity. That word Habakkuk received from Yahweh is analogous to the word we have received in the gospel of Jesus Christ and is meant to have a vital impact on the way we live our lives. This is why Paul would continue through his letter to the Romans eventually 
calling them to be living sacrifices. How could he do this? Because he knows they've been empowered to live differently through the gospel. Why should we anticipate God's word will have such a demonstrable impact on us? Because God's word transforms our hearts. God's saving work transforms the believer so completely, so radically that our very affections, the very affections of our hearts are reordered. God's words aren't primarily informative or educational, telling us, here's how you live. Rather, they're transformative. We are completely changed into new creatures that live radically altered lives than we would have prior to knowing Jesus Christ. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we no longer live for ourselves, we live for the glory of another. Amen? Again, listen to what Dr. Carson says about the gospel as it relates to our salvation. He says this, Why this pride in the gospel? Because Paul knows and knows from experience that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Salvation is a word that denotes deliverance from a broad range of evils and was used in the Old Testament to describe God's ultimate deliverance of his people. The gospel is the source of God's power to save because in it a righteousness from God is revealed. In Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, God is reminding the prophet that the person who is part of God's covenant people, the righteous, will experience God's blessing and understand his ways only through faithfulness to God and his covenant. In Paul's use of the verse, each of the key terms, righteous, live, faith, is given a deeper significance in the light of, the, of Christ, in the coming of Christ. But the general sense of the original is maintained. Habakkuk and Paul both affirm that life before God demands the wholehearted commitment of the individual. So that's my first point. The gospel produces righteousness in us when received by faith. Point two. That faith is revealed when we walk through the challenges of life. That faith, that functional faith, that faith in Jesus Christ is revealed as we walk through the challenges of life. After listening to all this, you may be thinking, okay, what's the point? I mean, after all, being immersed in the gospel for 2,000 years now, I think we kind of get it. Well, surely we know what it means to live by faith, right? Well, in a matter of speaking, yes. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's quite that easy. And I think we have a proper understanding of being justified by faith. But I want us to con- consider something as a way of application today. Because I think we can still struggle with living our lives in a Christ-exalting way. With the kind of faith that bears good fruit in the mundane of everyday living. In fact, I know we do. I know I do. Uh, and I long to see us bear more and more consistent fruit as we follow Christ together. So, there are two aspects of our theology. And you've probably heard this, but it's, it's one of the ways to break down this conversation. There's, there's a, a confessional side to our theology, right? What we say we believe. And then there's a, a functional side to our theology. And we live out our confession. Or, or rather, we recognize what our true confession is based on how we're living, how we're living functionally. Because living by faith is a much easier confession than it is a lifestyle. It makes for a great slogan, but it's forged in the mundane moments of trusting God in everyday life. We're tempted to default then to two other options that I want us to consider this morning as we wrestle as Christians in everyday life. So I'm calling these different options, one, a functional atheist response, okay? Functional atheist response. And then a functional deist response. Okay? And, 
And so what are these different, what does the, the functional atheist response look like? Well, the functional atheist may confess the reality of Jesus and show up on Sunday. In fact, I was just reading Titus 1 this morning. And Paul says, you know, there are those out there who profess to know God, but deny Him in the way they live. That's, that's perfect. That's a perfect definition for the functional atheist. You know, there's, there's a, an acceptance or profession of God, but an absolute denial in the works of their lives. So, so there's, a, uh, there's a confession of Jesus, but when conflict of interest sets in, the functional atheist responds in a way that neither acknowledges God nor seeks to honor Him. We simply want what we want when we want it. And that's what rules our hearts in any given conflict. So if I, claim, if I claim Christ, but I respond to my children, for instance, with sinful anger, even though in James 1 I'm being told, first be quick to listen, be slow to speak. You know, uh, what is it? Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Why? Because the, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I know that, and yet, I still want what I want when I want it in that moment. I'm not concerned with producing uh, the righteousness of God in my kids in that moment. I want the respect I think I deserve. And in that moment, I've just pl- played out functional atheism. I've just said, God, uh, you're, you're not, it's, it doesn't matter right now who you are and what you are because I want to be God in this moment, in this situation. Okay, that's, that's the concept of functional atheism. We can wrestle back and forth with that. And so I wanted us to consider that. Uh, that's what, uh, that's what functional atheism looks like. And, and so the second, then the second response is functional deist. What, was a, what would a functional deist response look like? And it's a little more religious. It comes to the same conclusion, though, as the functional atheist response. You know there's a God. You even acknowledge His existence. But when pushed by circumstances, you can respond as though He's not in the problem you're facing in that moment. So you need to handle it. And you'll do it your way. And hopefully, that'll be pleasing to God. But if not... You're still just going to handle it. So, say you're experiencing conflict at work. And when the opportunity to get even with the person who has become a thorn in your side arises, you take full advantage of that opportunity. But what does the Spirit say through Paul in Romans 12? Bless those who persecute you. Repay no one evil for evil. But leave it to the wrath of God. Don't take it into your own hands. That's the counsel we're called to obey as a reflection of our faith in God. Trusting Him to take care of it. You know, I don't, any parent here in the room who's either raised kids or is raising kids or will raise kids, uh, you, you know, you're training your kids in the ways of righteousness, right? You're training them to love God and to live for His glory. And so all of a sudden conflict ensues and there's this little war in the living room and, and a back and forth. And so you set them aside and you set and graciously talk them through the gospel. And what, do you, what are you living for? And what, what's your highest goal? What's the glory of God? Well, hey, good, good answer. They've got all the Sunday school answers down pat, right? Uh, so we live for the glory of God. And how do you do that? Well, we love one another. Good answer. So what happened here? Well, she hit me first, so I hit her back. That's functional deism, right? We recognize God, but in that moment, it doesn't matter that he's God. I'm going to handle this, right? Um, Think of those in this room prone to anxious worry. Not that there's anyone in this room (laughs) prone to anxious worry, mind you. But but if there were, if there were, uh, we know that Jesus' command was clear. We we saw it earlier, right? Don't be anxious for nothing. Uh, Yet the functional deist will recognize the command to trust God, but continue on in fearful worry even possibly spiritualizing that worry. Okay, that's how far we'll go uh, by, by saying, well, I'm, not, I'm really not worried. I'm just concerned. I'm just concerned, right? When really, if we're just honest, that's worry. 
You know, so, so these are some of the things we wrestle with. Uh, again, Scripture is clear. God, uh, on the way that God wants us to respond. All too often we choose not to. And in that moment we fail to recognize God as God. At this point though you can be struggling like, okay, what's the, what's the real difference between functional deism and functional atheism? There's, there's quite a bit of parallel, isn't there? There is. Uh, but even though the atheist would resp- not acknowledge God at all, the, the deist would, would recognize God but still sets him outside of the problem, outside of the situation. Either way, we've failed to exalt God and worship Him the way He both deserves and demands. Each situation gives us opportunity to respond with the faith inherent in the salvation we confess, but oftentimes we fail to express faith in the nitty-gritty down-to-earth situations experienced in everyday life. So what are we to do? God has these expectations and we fail to live up to them daily. Not every so often, not regularly, but, but daily. The weight of our sin in those moments, boy, I don't know about you, but it's just, it's excruciating. I hate it. I hate failing my father. And, and oftentimes I fail to recognize just how regularly I blow it. Just how often I solve problems my way. I, I hate seeing my own sin and the effects of lingering sin in my life. And in times of reflecting on your sin, aren't you thankful for the gospel? Aren't you thankful? Herein enters the hero of our story, right? Jesus came into a world of sinful, broken people and did the very thing we neither deserved nor could have ever done for ourselves. Though He could have condemned us, and I see how He could condemn me every day of my life, He has compassion on us instead. And He chose to save us. Jesus took on Himself our imperfect and flawed deeds and He bore them on the cross. And for those of us who have put our hope in Him, we get to live with His perfect, faith-filled righteousness applied to us. That's good news. And that leads to my third point. Saving faith only comes through Christ's righteousness and is reflected every day of our lives. Saving faith only comes through Christ's righteousness and is reflected every day in our lives. And guess what? It's not reflected in the way I live. It was reflected in the way He lived on our behalf. Amen? Jesus became sin for you and me. So when I respond to a situation like an atheist would, with no thought of God, Christ's sinless perfection is applied to me. When, when you struggle with a response toward a situation or another person, you lack faith in that moment, know that Christ's perfect trust in the Father and the righteousness that is attached to that faith, that's yours. That's the gospel. That's how it plays out in everyday life. Though our confession is one of faith in God through Jesus Christ by grace, we all struggle in responding functionally as atheists and deists at times. The goal this morning isn't to show us where we fail and encourage us to just do better. No, rather the goal is to help us glance at our sin and then gaze at our Savior. We want to take glances at our sin, but we really want to just gaze at our Savior this morning. And when we do, we should be struck by a hill called Calvary, where perfect love was expressed by faith in the God who raises the dead and strengthens us to express saving faith in every aspect of our lives. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, empowering faith-filled responses in the midst of the chaos that floods everyday life. So let's reconsider the atheist and deist responses in light of the gospel. 
Okay? What would, they, what would gospel-dependent responses look like if we, were, if we were able to get that do-over or rather apply it the next time it happens? And I'm calling this a functional Christian response because here is great encouragement and hope for us to respond by faith to the challenges God's, God brings us. So when I'm tempted to sin angrily against my kids, I, I remember by the grace of God that, that passage in James 1 and I actually stop and I prioritize by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the gospel I can I can prefer just listening to little hearts who don't get it right every time right and I can prioritize God's glory and seeing his righteousness worked in their lives okay and all of a sudden what, what was once a very Tyson centered atheist oriented situation and response has just now been turned into a God glorifying Christ centered response only by the power of the Holy Spirit that's how the gospel transforms that situation. Or say the functional deist response where there's conflict at work and the temptation to get even with the person has become, that has become, seeks to overtake you. You refuse. Instead, you recognize God's glory as the highest goal. And so you choose to bless the person by praying for them and by praising them for their job performance while, while leaving any kind of retaliation to the Lord's work. Consider those of you, again, this, this hypothetical group in here that, that can be prone to anxious worry. Rather than giving in to that temptation, you recognize the command and the hope of the Father's provision and you pray. And you share your struggle with another brother or sister in Christ. Choosing to trust the Lord, you resi- resist that urge to think that you're alone in any challenge. And instead, you build a confession of God's nearness. Only the gospel empowers these kinds of responses. Only the gospel. Only by faith are we transformed to glory in our affection for Christ over seeking our own desire in any point of, of conf- confrontation and conflict. So in your mind you may be wondering, well, what, what if I am struggling to live out my faith? What if it doesn't look as consistent as I'd like? What if I find o- obedience difficult? What then? In Milton Vincent's book, A Gospel Primer, he deconstructs our, disappo- our disobedience to God as distrust in Him. We really are questioning whether or not there's a, a better alternative to what God is giving us than what we're experiencing. And, and we might even find that alternative on our own. Well, the gospel brings us back to the simple answer that there is no better alternative for us than what God is giving us. Even though we may not like it, it is, it is His absolute best for us in developing in us the character of Christ. It's always good for me to realize this so I can repent and grow toward a Christ-honoring response and to live in the good of the gospel. And when we repent, we're reminded in, in 1 John 1 that He is faithful and just to forgive us. Amen? to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let me end by sharing a story with you of what functional, Christ-exalting faith looks like in the midst of tremendous adversity. Julia's life was in a state of total, absolute upheaval. Julia had married two years earlier before coming to us for help. As a young mother, Julia was faced with the greatest challenge of her life. Her husband had deserted her for a life of drugs and alcohol. He actually had done it several times over. And all the trappings included in a life filled with sin. She was angry. She was confused. She was wondering uh, and talking to us how God would want her to respond to this situation. 
We walked with her through the torments of wondering where her husband even was, whether or not he would return, whether or not she even wanted him to return, assuring her that as wretched as this situation was, Jesus Christ was in it with her and had hope for her. Julia could have responded with fear. She could have blamed her husband for the chaos of her life. She could have blamed God and could have easily seen her life spiral into depression. So how is she going to respond? Well, after working with her and reminding her of the hope she had in the gospel, the fact that she wasn't alone, she had a Savior who identified with her in her loneliness, who loved her. She had a a church family who would walk with her and loved her. She was encouraged by the Lord. She responded in faith, believing that God could restore her marriage. Again, this is weeks and weeks of praying for her and counseling with her and she was, she was willing to believe God could restore her marriage. But even if he chose not to, she would trust in the Lord as her ultimate Savior. This reminds me of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Though the fields yield no food. Though there is no earthly reason for hope. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy and the God of my salvation. For Habakkuk, his faith resulted in a song of rejoicing. For Jesus, his faith resulted in a cross of salvation for many. Our question today is, what will our faith response look like? Next time we're tempted challenges of life. Please hear me, now isn't the time to work harder, to stir up willpower. This is the time for the gospel. This is the time to see gospel fruit and gospel spirit work in our lives. Because because of Christ and in light of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we know that He's called us to living by faith in Him every day by the way we think, the way we act toward one another, the way we live before our neighbors. Our calling to live differently encompasses the way we work, the way we parent our kids, the way we think about hobbies and recreation, the way we spend our money, The way we eat, literally living by faith in the Son of God has implications in every aspect of lives. As you go through this next week, allow me to exhort you to prayerfully discern how you are functionally living. How prayerfully question yourself. Am I being tempted to respond as a functional atheist or a functional deist? Am I trusting God in this moment and and living out that faith before Him that reflects Jesus? Because we're not a bunch of good people learning to do better. That's not what this is about. Trying to get it right this next week because, well, even though we failed to get it right this week. No, we're a group of people who fail daily and meet regularly as a group to, to encourage one another, to rehearse the vital truth that Christ did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And He's producing in us what we could never have produced on our own. Amen? Amen. A righteousness by faith that saves. This is what we celebrate This is why we can rejoice. He has saved us and has filled us with spirit-enabled power. Amen? Amen. Let's pray for a minute. Because Lord, we are completely dependent upon you. And we long to see you glorified in every aspect of our lives. We thank you this morning for the gospel. Which, yes, has provision for our biggest problem. But, yes, has provision for the mundane moments of everyday life as well. You empower us to glorify you every day as we seek to live out this faith you've called us to, ultimately resulting 
in our, in our stepping into eternity and getting to be with you. Lord, we cannot wait for that day when our faith becomes sight. But until that day, Lord, we thank you for filling our every day with grace, with hope, and with the power necessary to see you glorified and exalted in our lives. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name.